Welcome again to Door Creek Online. Thanks for joining us today. And Doug, thanks for that prayer. And let's continue as a church to be praying for our nation, especially this week. Hey, I can't encourage you enough to get into a group. So for many of us, these past 10 months and all the challenges of a pandemic have, have been relieved in many ways just through the support of good friends that we have found in our life groups and support groups. So we encourage you to find a group. That's what we do around here. That's how we grow best. Or if you're just considering the claims of Christ, you head over to the Alpha class and you get your questions. Uh, you can ask them there and you can get answers from God's word. We'd love for you to connect in that way. So doorcreekchurch.org forward slash adults gets you to all that information. H.G. Wells the English novelist, journalist, sociologist, and historian was best known for some of his works of science fiction like The Time Machine and The War of Worlds. But he also wrote this great short story called The Country of the Blind. It's about this inaccessible, luxurious place in Ecuador that had been cut off from the rest of the world because of some kind of volcano or earthquake. The people, though, suffered from some congenital disease whereby generation after generation, slowly, everyone lost their sight. There was nobody in the world of the blind who could see. There's no recollection of sight, no understanding of color or the outside world. Finally, a man from the outside world drops in. His name is Nunez. He's a mountain climber. He was leading this group that was hiking and he fell, they thought, to his death only to stumble into this country of the blind, this beautiful place that was strange. There were no windows on the houses as he approached. And soon he found out why the people, all of them, were blind. He remembered the old adage, in the country of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. So he tried at first on several occasions to assert why he should be king by telling him about the marvels of sight and the sight that he had, but they never believed him. They thought he was crazy. The man fell in love with the girl of the man he was working for, Jacob, and he asked Jacob if he could marry her, to which Jacob said, I, I don't know. I mean, he thought this guy was crazy. What should I do? He goes and talks to his friend, the doctor, who said, you know what, Jacob? Here's what we need to do. We just need to have Nunez get an operation, and I, I can just take care of his eyesight, and he'll be permanently blind. To which Jacob goes, well, does that mean he'll be sane? He'll be in his right mind. He says, oh, yeah, he'll be sane. He'll be an admirable citizen, a model citizen and community. To which Jacob goes, oh, thank heaven for science. So he goes and he tells Nunez, yes, you can marry my daughter on one condition. You've got to have an operation on your eyes that will permanently blind you so that you are like us, blind. Nunez loved her so much, he didn't give it a second thought. Oh, well, of course I'll do it. Well, let's do it tomorrow. Well, the, the operation was scheduled. He got up early in the morning, he said, you know, one last time. I want to just venture out in the meadow and look at the mountains. And as the sun was rising in its golden armor, he just realized, what am I doing? I, I can't give this up. I, I can't just turn my life into blindness and darkness and living in this pit. And so he began to climb up the hills and up the mountains where he escaped 
with his life from the country of the blind. John chapter 9, if you will, allows us to enter into the country of the blind where we meet a man born blind from birth. And we meet these other people who we think can see clearly that Jesus will tell us, no, actually, they're blind. So grab your Bible. We're in John chapter 9, where we catch up with the miracle of the blind man, where we understand the way to truly see is to, to admit that we don't and to remember that Jesus is the only one who can heal our eyes, the ones in our head and the eyes of our heart. John chapter 9, you there? Verse 1. As he, Jesus, went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. So we just got to catch up with this man's life, born blind. Never saw a sunrise, never saw the sunset. Never saw the trees waving in the wind. Never saw his mother smile, his dad's frown, his brothers and sisters' laughter etched across their faces. He never saw the tree that he would lean against day after day as he begged for alms. He never saw the cane that guided him through the city streets. He never saw any of that. His life was gripped with terror. He was helpless and hopeless, filled with despair, and his life was cut off from the lives of others. Helen Keller, who wasn't born blind, said, Gradually I got used to the silence and the darkness that surrounded me and forgot that it had ever been different until my teacher, referring to Ann Sullivan, set my spirit free. That's what's about to happen. And it began when he overheard Jesus say, this man didn't sin because he was convinced that he had sinned, that he had done something wrong. In fact, that was the logical syllogism of everybody in that day. If you are suffering, it's because you've done something wrong. I'm suffering, so I must have done something wrong. And he's hearing Jesus say, no, 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 he didn't sin. There, there's nothing morally that he has done that brings him into this condition. And then with his acute senses, right, all of a sudden he not only hears that, but he senses that someone's coming close. And he hears him spit. And the spray hits his hands as the clump of saliva hits the dirt floor. He hears him kneading that dirt into a ball. And he takes that gritty paste and he applies it on his eyes like a mascara. And then he hears the words, go and wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. And it's a beautiful thing that he didn't say, well, you know what? I'm kind of tired. Why don't we just think about doing that, that, uh, that whole exercise tomorrow? Or Jesus, I hear that you heal people all the time with words. Can't you just say, uh, be healed? Like, why the humiliation of this? And I got to go amble my way through the streets again 
not seeing. Why, why, why are you doing this to me? Nope. No, he, he actually took God at his word. And he went to the pool, which means sent. This pool that has great historical background. You see, this pool, the pool of Siloam, traces back to the spring of Gihon, some 1,700 feet outside the city wall. It was dug and excavated and brought into the city, underneath the city walls, during King Hezekiah's reign. Because he feared that the king of Assyria, uh, Sennacherib, was going to besiege the city and cut off the water supply. And so here's these sent waters from the Kidron Valley into the city, these life-giving waters, and he goes, taking Jesus at his word, believing his promise. And as he goes home, seeing for the first time, there's all kinds of commotion going on in the hood. And the neighbors are out, and the parents are out, and his mom's screaming, and his brothers and sisters are dancing, and they can't believe what's happening. We pick it up in verse 8. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked him, isn't the man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. That's not him. But he insisted himself, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. So there's a series of investigations going on here from verse 8 all the way to 34. The first is with the neighbors. And they're divided on their take. Some say, yep, that's the guy. Others say, no, it's not. It just looks like the guy. It's not possible that this guy who's born blind could now see. The man says, look, you guys, I am that guy. But they don't want to get involved because he just mentioned Jesus. And Jesus is on the naughty list of the spiritual leadership. And the word is out that if you associate with Jesus, you get kicked out of the synagogue. And so they don't want anything to do with this. They drag him over to the religious leaders. And we pick up the story. And the story continues. Verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who'd been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath the holy day, our Saturday, the seventh day. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs, such miracles? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. And so here you go. And it's rinse and repeat. He's telling what he told the neighbors, what Jesus told them to do. And the, the, the Pharisees, man, they're all on about not the miracle not about Jesus, but what he did and when he did it. And, and they don't believe it. They think this is some kind of a, a charade. You know, you've watched some of those programs. You're going, really? Is this really true, this healing? That's the position they're in. I don't think it's true. I don't think this guy was ever blind, ever blind, especially not born blind. So they drag in his parents, verse 19. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it now he can see? 
We know he's our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak of him for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That's why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So, I mean, if we're watching the movie, the, the parents' posture is just filled with tension because they know what their son said. Their son's already told them about Jesus. And they know about Jesus' reputation in the city of Jerusalem. So they don't want to go there. Easy to say, yep, our son. Easy to say, check, born blind. But they're not going to this whole matter of who healed them, Jesus. Because they don't want to get kicked out of the synagogue. And we don't get it. Because we're going, well... Look, if I get kicked out of First Baptist, I'm going to go to Second Baptist. And if I get kicked out of Second Baptist, I go to the Presbyterian Church. If I get kicked out of the Presbyterian Church, I go to the Methodist Church, the Episcopals, and the, the Pentecostals. Man, I got lots of options. Not in that day. You got the synagogue. It's where the Jewish people worshipped, where they heard God's word read, where they worshipped God, where they heard God's word taught, where they were in fellowship with other followers of God. They don't want to be cut off in any way, shape, or form. And so the religious leaders send for the man. And the interrogation continues. Verse 24. A second time they summon the man who'd been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth. It's almost like, all right, raise your right hand, put your other hand on the Bible, and repeat after me. You know, I solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. It's just kind of like that. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man, speaking to Jesus, is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already, you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to be his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you're his fellow disciple. We're disciples of Moses, the man. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man, the blind man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody's ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. This is unprecedented. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you are steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. They threw him out. So the gloves were off when he poked him in the eye and said, oh, do you guys, do you guys want to be his disciples? So look, I've already told you this story. What more can I tell you? And so the blind man who's been ostracized was not intimidated and kind of dripping with this sarcastic irony. He goes to give him what would be a common sense, logical argument proving that there's no way the word sinner can cap encapsulate this man, Jesus. They just don't fit. So he says, look, I was born blind, right? And, and 
Nobody's ever been healed from that. We know that God doesn't answer ungodly people's prayer, but he answers the prayer of those who do his will. This man in healing me proved that God hears him, that he's doing his will, and so he must be from God. He must be who he said he is. So they're outraged. They don't go, you know, now, now, that, you're, now that you're saying it so plainly, how did we miss that? Wow. No, they're incensed. They're outraged. You could see these veins start to bulge. Their faces are turning red, and they're ready not to kill Jesus. They're ready to kill this guy. Who are you to lecture us, you sinful man who's been steeped in sin from birth? By the way, when they said that, they just acknowledged that he was born blind. Because that's, that, that's how those two things are are connected, steeped in sin from birth. They just, they just said, it's undeniable. You said it. Your parents have said it. We can't deny it. That's who you are. But let me just say, you're steeped in sin. You're still sin. You're a poser. You're following this poser, Jesus. We're, we're following the real guy, Moses, the one who gave us the law that we teach and follow. You're a nobody following a nobody. And they kicked him out just as his parents feared. They kicked him out from the fabric of society that he was so excited to go and meet with, with eyes of sight. Hearing that he'd been kicked out, verse 35, we read this. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out of the synagogue, excommunicated him. And when he found him, in other words, what a beautiful thing. Jesus, hearing that he'd been excommunicated from the synagogue, goes looking for him, searching for him. His heart of compassion and mercy to someone who's suffering because of his name, Jesus' name. So he finds him and he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? This is this messianic title that comes out of the prophets, Ezekiel and Daniel, that Jesus would use of himself. Not so much in the Gospel of John. More likely he'll use the, the phrase, the Son of God. But here he does refer to the Son of Man, the one who would come to make God known in human flesh, the one who would come to bring judgment. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Well, who is he, sir? I, I want to believe, but I don't, know. I don't know who he is. The man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. He fell to his knees and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what? Are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. So it's really interesting to just watch the progression of this man's faith. In opposition, in contrast to the continued hardening of the religious leaders who actually are looking for Jesus, the Messiah. And one's opening up. He begins by explaining that Jesus, his understanding is he's the man called Jesus in verse 11. He then says, I, I think maybe he's a prophet, verse 17. 
he references by implication that he must be a rabbi. Verse 27. Do you want to be his disciples? That's what disciples do. Follow a rabbi. To now he understands and believes that he's the son of man. Even the son of God. Worthy of his worship. Verse 39 has a scratching our head. I think the NLT will clarify things. What, what does it mean that the blind will see and those who see will become blind? That last part, those who see will become blind. Well, the NLT puts it this way. Then Jesus told him, five, uh, verse 39 of chapter 9 actually, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind and to show those who think they see that they are blind, that they're blind. And so they ask him, what? Do you think we're blind, the religious leaders? And Jesus said, well, you know what? You're the ones who claim to see. If you, if you actually would acknowledge that you're blind, that you have need, that you, that you recognize your spiritual condition, then you, you would not be guilty. But because you say you see, because you don't think you have any need, because you do not recognize who I am or your need for me, you remain in your guilt, reminding us of the words of John 3.18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And so guys, what the Bible is saying here fundamentally about all of us in our nature because of the fall and rebellion of our first parents is that we are all born with, with this congenital spiritual disease blindness where we're not able to perceive and receive the truth of Christ without his merciful intervention whereby he would grant us faith and open the eyes of our hearts. So Jesus didn't come to a world that was aware of their spiritual blindness, of their need for a savior, eager to get rid of their sin, and so that even those who studied the scriptures diligently, these Pharisees, just miss it completely. So there's three implications that we want to look at. The first has to do with suffering. When it comes to suffering, it's good to remember just because you suffer, don't conclude it's due to sin in your life. Righteous people can suffer. Hello, Jesus the worst suffering that any human has ever, but without sin. Job, a righteous man who suffered. Are there consequences for sin? Could you suffer for sin? Absolutely. But just because you're suffering doesn't mean you're suffering because you messed up and now God's getting back at you. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. There are implications about service here. Jesus reminds us that the work of God that brings God honor is holistic. It's whole person. He treated his eyes and he treated his heart. It reminds us of what we're on about in our fourth value of a joyful witness where we are sharing and living the good news. And as we extend his mercy to those in need. And so we're, we're all about the whole person as we're his hands and feet in this world. Jesus didn't just say, look, dude, your eyesight's not an issue. I'm gonna take you to heaven real soon here, so just hang on with that. 
And I'm, I'm going to just open up your heart and give you a new heart and spiritual life and the hope of eternal life. No, he met his needs, his physical needs. He was aware of his social needs when he went after him, when he was excommunicated. The emotional, the physical, the social, the spiritual, the whole gospel to the whole person, which continues today as we do ministry in Jesus' name. It's never just one. It's never just the physical. It's never just the spiritual. It's the whole person bringing all of Jesus to bring healing to the whole person. And then the third implication has to do with discipleship. And so the blind man here is a model of a true disciple. Last week, we looked at the three marks of true disciples, right? They hold on to Jesus' teaching. They love Jesus. They listen to his teaching. And now here's, here we see it lived out in this man who begins so well. His poverty of spirit and humility where, where he acknowledges his need. He takes Jesus at his word. He obeys his command. He goes. He believes his promise to be healed. And, and, he, and he's healed. And he perseveres through suffering because it cost him to follow Jesus, to be associated with Jesus. And he grew and grew in his understanding of Jesus from a prophet to the Son of Man, his Lord, worthy of his worship. And so his faith wasn't just in what Jesus had done, but in who Jesus revealed himself to be. And his faith had, had, had tenacity to it. It was a, a persevering faith through the insult and the mockery and the humiliation. And, and that's really important to remember as we find ourselves following Jesus, that Jesus said, in this world, you're gonna have trouble. Jesus said, rejoice. Look at this in Matthew chapter five. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Not because you're being a jerk, because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And that's where and that's why Paul and Silas could sing in Philippi's jail. And that's why Peter and the apostles could rejoice that after they'd been beaten, they, had, they counted it that they were worthy to be uh, suffering for Christ and with Christ. They, they, they counted it as a privilege. And we need to catch up with that. Because friends, in our tolerant pluralistic society, let me tell you, Jesus still is a divider. And they'll want to push you out and they'll want to insult you. It cannot be because we're obnoxious. It cannot be because we're proud, arrogant people. We must suffer for doing life in the spirit in the way of Jesus. But expect that. Expect it. So the application gets down to one troubling question. Who am I most like in this story? The blind man or the Pharisee? Am I like the blind man? What a beautiful picture of just, man, I need help. You know, this posture of a beggar, help me. I don't have the resources in of myself. Jesus, help me. Give me life. Give me sight. Do I have that posture? Or is that a thing of the past? And now, you know, I, I've kind of moved away from that. I don't think I need Jesus so much. The gospel, that, that's like the front door. I'm well into the front of the house. I'm up on the fourth floor and going and growing. I don't need that kindergarten teaching of the gospel. And what, what's happening here is you're, you're, you're developing these new cataracts. A year ago, I went to the 
to the doc for, for an eye appointment. And, you know, I did the dilation thing. And she said, the prescription's going to be the same. It all looks good. And after the dilation, she says, you know, you got two cataracts. I go, what? That's impossible. I'm 25. Well, not really, but that's what I was thinking. I can't be old enough to have cataracts. She said, yeah, you got these floaters too. I didn't see it. Didn't see it. And maybe over time, there's like this cataract, spiritual cataract, this numbness to the grace of God, to our need for Jesus every minute of our life. Or is it possible we're just like those religious Pharisees who are just very confident in their self-sufficiency and their good works and their religious activity and they're going, I don't need it. They, 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 they wouldn't think twice about turning to Jesus. What in the world? I'm doing the work. I'm living a morally upright life. Jesus said, you're blind. Here's the signs of blindness. For the person, whether you're a secular humanist or a very religious person, here are the signs from the text. We're quick to judge others. There's this moral superiority about our lives. We hold on to the human traditions of men and women over the teachings of Jesus. We're defensive in our posture, prone to to push back any kind of stance of reflection. Confession, repentance are complete strangers to us. Religious activity are far more important than pursuing a relationship. We don't even know what that is. Our trust is fundamentally in our good works, not in Jesus' good work on the cross. And so the cure is to follow the blind man who admitted that he was blind. The way to truly see is to admit that we don't. To take Jesus at his word to obey his commands, to believe his promises, to believe that he didn't come on accident, didn't fall into this blind country by accident. He came here on purpose with a mission to give us life as the light of the world. He didn't want to, he wanted to escape the, the country of the blind. He prayed about it. Father, there's another way, but he stayed. He didn't just stay to have eye surgery. And to become blind, he stayed to give up his life so that through his death, we might live. A few years ago, The Edge, the U2's guitarist, took his son out trick-or-treating in L.A. And so they thought it'd be fun. Let's you and me, son, both dress up as me. And so they got in his trademark garb of the black beanie, the black leather jacket with the guitar slung around his neck and as they walked away from one door they heard a couple in the house say that is a bit sad that dad doesn't look anything like the edge Jesus said to the man to the religious leaders of his day I am the son of man God's one and only son who has the power to heal This man who was born blind and the power to give new life. The Pharisees asked the man, what do you say about him? And that's what John would have us ponder today. What do you say about Jesus? Let's pray. Father God, 
We pray that your word through your spirit would win a hearing in the hearts of students and children, of adults, young and old, that you would open the eyes of our heart to see you for who you truly are. The Son of God who has great power to restore life, to give life and hope. Lord, I pray that you'd grant faith, that you would strengthen faith, that you would hear our confession for the spiritual blindness and cataracts that are, that are building over our heart, whereby we, we don't act anymore like we need you, that there's some kind of moral superiority going on in our lives. Would you just clean that out of our hearts, Lord, and out of our lives and out of our posture? And Lord, we pray that you would give us sight even as we acknowledge we don't clearly see until that day when we see you face to face lord may we point people to you lord jesus the light of the world it's in your name we pray amen